1: at your next Civil War Roundtable meeting. What was the longest campaign of the Civil War? Was it the overland campaign? Vicksburg? The Atlanta campaign? The answer I'd give is the blockade. Where land campaigns were measured in weeks, U.S. Navy's blockade of the southern coast was a continuous daily effort that stretched over four years. And if you don't get enough argument over that question, try this the blockade effect. At the draft of book called the, the Union blockade of the American Civil War, the U.S.S. by Michael Bonner and Peter McCord. We'll talk with co-author McCord tonight on Civil. Sub-
0: play finding your frequency podcast
2: if that doesn't work try adding on tune in or on iheart radio or on apple podcasts
0: the internet's number 1 talk station number 1 talk station voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, where we usually come from, not always in the summer, and it is summertime now by the academic calendar. It's the last day of May, 2023. But though I am sitting here in the Brewster Building, I'm not speaking on behalf of East Carolina University or anybody else, and my guest likewise only represents himself tonight. Well, it is nice to be here in the office. It's quiet. There's very few people around and I've got a brand new giant monitor. They replaced, uh, uh, computers for some of us this year. You get a new one every four or five years, depending on the budget. And, uh, I missed the last refresh period for some reason. So I was still using my, my Fisher price 2014 and was able to get a new one. And, uh, The old monitors didn't work with the new computers, so we got new monitors, and they said you can pick whatever size, so make no mistake, I asked for the biggest one possible. It does fit in the room. Uh, It fits on the desk. It's like the 37-inch monitor. I've never experienced anything as, as grand as this. I can see multiple screens, multiple windows open at one time. Uh, Just getting used to it here. I think this is the first show we're doing with the the Giant Monitor, and I will hopefully be able to communicate more effectively because of it. Uh, Hoping for more effectiveness also is what I'm feeling about the ECU baseball team. They did not win the conference tournament last weekend. They are now the second seed in the Charlottesville Regional for the NCAA tournament this coming weekend. If you're not an American listener, and and I know many of you are not, uh, references to college baseball may be obscure and meaningless. And indeed, if you're an American listener, references to college baseball may be obscure and meaningless because baseball is so far overshadowed on campus by football and basketball. um, The students are all home uh, during much of the baseball season. There's no one to watch the games uh at my alma mater university of michigan the team played all its games on the road until may because there was still snow on the field in april and then we all went home for the summer in may and so there was no one to see them uh but but i've i've come to appreciate ecu's team and we'll see how they do in the tournament speaking of baseball my younger daughter maria now fully grown up and gainfully employed and not playing youth soccer anymore. Uh, she went to a white Sox game in Chicago this past week and she got a foul ball. I've been going to games, major league games, starting at tiger stadium in 1967 and have been to dozens, maybe hundreds of games by this time. And I have never come close to getting a foul ball. And again, for you, non baseball Listeners, uh, unlike in soccer, when the ball goes out of play, you, know, you throw it back on on the pitch. In baseball, you get to keep the ball. Teams go through a hundred balls during a game, and yet, in spite of all those foul balls, I have never once been in the right place at the right time to catch one. And uh, Maria and the she was there with her boyfriend and their family, and, and they got one. Uh, so I've seen the picture. I'm, I'm very jealous. Uh, also, jealous is not the word, uh, congratulatory is how I feel about the, uh, 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 the success of last week's uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours visit to this hallowed ground. We had a wonderful week. Uh, I hope you can join us the next time we do this. Go to the Ambrose website and find out about it. On the way home, uh, when, when a week of Civil War tours is over, I can imagine nothing more fun to do than go visit another Civil War battlefield. So I was driving to Malvern Hill, uh, southeast of Richmond, when I saw an unexpected sign by the side of the road for some newly preserved land uh, where the Battle of New Market Heights, 1864, took place. I was able to drive up this driveway, read a couple interpretive signs, see Four Mile Creek in person for the first time. That is one incredibly steeply banked uh, piece of geography if, if you're i had no idea it, it looked the way it does and until seeing it in person there's never any substitute for going to the battlefield and four mile creek is one example so uh a quick shout out tonight to the capital region land conservancy um, the battle of new market heights memorial and education society the american battlefield trust all these organizations and others working together to preserve land that uh otherwise might have fallen to development well done also well done will be the next couple shows not because of anything i do but our guests who will be here next week allison m johnson will join us to talk about a work she has edited called the left armed corps writings by amputee civil war veterans and we'll just have to Read that one and talk about it. We'll do a semi-live show on the 14th of June and come back with our last show of the season. Uh, Ty Sedgley will be with us and we'll talk about his very uh, thought-provoking book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. As always, you can find out from www w.impedimentsofwar.org who's going to be on or who has been on. You can listen to 600 past shows as we finish our 19th season of Civil War Talk Radio. You can contribute to the show, to the book and bourbon and monitor cleaning fluid fund, which I'll need more of now with the new giant monitor. Uh, it's not a charitable donation. It's just a way of Uh, showing appreciation for what you learn from the people who appear on the show and is much appreciated. uh, Click on the PayPal button when you go to the website and that's how you do it. Uh, There is also uh, the opportunity now that we're in t-shirt weather to buy civil war talk radio t-shirts there. Uh, i I'm not wearing mine tonight. I was wearing it last week. Tonight I'm wearing the Eastern Carolina University t-shirt, which you can also get. That is a pure indulgence on my part. There of course is no Eastern Carolina University, but ESPN periodically gets it wrong and calls ECU Eastern instead of East Carolina University. So this shirt is my petulant uh, pushback at at TV for getting the name of the school wrong, and you can get one. You can be maybe the third or fourth person in the world to own one. Uh, go to Tee. Go to the, the website, then click on the link to tea Public, where the Civil War Talk Radio t-shirts are, and get yourself a truly obscure fake American college shirt. Tonight, we are talking about the blockade during the Civil War. Uh, there is a relatively new book from 2021, I believe. Let's make sure we've got that right. 2021, University of Tennessee Press uh, called the Union Blockade in the Civil War a reassessment. Always interesting to challenge old ideas. And that's what these authors have done. Uh, The authors are Michael Brem Bonner and Peter McCord. Uh, Dr. Bonner has been on the show before. We talked about Confederate political economy with him. I really enjoyed that book and tonight we have his co-author uh, dr. Peter McCord joining us dr. McCord are you there
3: I'm here thanks for having me
1: uh, glad you could join us for the show tonight um, yeah, this is a, a, a let me start with the, the fact that this is a co-authored book and uh, they said in the introduction I really enjoyed your your, your co-authors previous book how long uh, i, I how long have the two of you uh, known each other?
3: Oh, well, thanks. That's an excellent question. Michael and I are, are friends as well as co-authors, friends, colleagues, and, and co-authors, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met him in graduate school. Uh, we were at the same PhD program at the University of California at Riverside. Uh, we were working with some of the same um, you know faculty there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was probably, I, I think the first time I met him was either 98 or 99, so we've known each other for a while now.
1: And at Riverside, uh, one of the faculty there, and you mentioned it in your book, was uh, Roger Ransom, who yes. l- listeners will recognize that name. Many of them his counterfactual work about the uh, the Confederacy winning the war, and uh, the approach he took to that. Um, did he play a role in in the two of you deciding to write a book? Uh, that – it's not counterfactual, but it it attempts to evaluate uh, uh, how the past might have been different.
3: Uh, I would only say uh, indirectly. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to go into too long of a story here, but when I was a a research assistant for Roger Ransom when I was a graduate student, Mm -hmm. and he had me collect some of the data that we ultimately used in the book. Uh, we collected it back in the summer of '98 or '99. I'm trying to remember now. But when I it was, I was deep in the middle of graduate school, and you know, I needed some summer funding, and Roger was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I collected this data, and Roger, you know, was working on the the things you just mentioned. Mostly, he was more interested in those counterfactuals. So he left the data with me. It sat dormant for a while. And then Michael and I met up again. We Actually, we, were at, we bumped into each other at the AHA in New York. That must have been 2006 or 7. Whoever was there can correct me on whatever year it was. <laughs> <laughs> but we bumped into each other again, and we started talking about the data. Um, and we decided that we could, let's make an article first, which we did. Uh, that was in the North Carolina Historical Review. Um, and then we, we expanded. Then when the article was successful, we thought, in terms of the feedback and in terms of what we accomplished, um, then we went on and uh, worked on the co-authored book.
1: Well, so the uh, it's interesting how projects can can lie dormant for such a long time, and then uh, the right time comes along. What made it the right time twenty years later to uh, to put this data into into book form?
3: Yeah, well, so we like I said, we we uh, I think the article I'm trying to remember now we presented uh, in Richmond at the Civil War Society that was in 2009 or 10 then Michael was prodding me, you know, he really wanted to get started on this. And I, I did too, but you know, I'm, uh, I'm a, without getting into all the details, it's different at every campus, but I'm a Mm full-time position here at Fredonia, but I'm not tenured. So Mm -hmm. I don't have access. I have to teach four classes every semester. And I, you know, I don't have access to as much travel money and research money as the other faculty do. So I was a little more hesitant, but, and Michael said, well, we'll co-author it and that'll work out fine. And of course it did. Um, but we got the article published first, and that was in 2012, I think. And then we started working on the book. Um, but for me, working on the book meant really working on it in break and summers. My, my <laughs> teaching and service load is pretty heavy. So part of it was just the natural academic workload, which a lot of the listeners are probably familiar with. Um, stretch things out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then I happened to be, I've got some, it was a kind of a weird thing. I've got some f- good friends uh, from a long time ago who both live in London. So I, and I finally went to London in 2013, I think, to visit my friends. And of course, one day I was like, well, I should, I've never been to the British National Archives. So I went to the British National Archives. And in just an hour or two, I found hundreds of pages of things that could, that were related to the, the blockade and, and documents indeed that were used in the book. Um and so I went back the next summer on a full, and my, and Michael came and joined me for a while, and we did a full research stint there at the British National Archives. And that adds a lot to, I think, what's in the book. It also mm-hmm. adds a lot to the timing of getting the book done.
1: Well, first, let me say I have complete sympathy uh, through a quirk of scheduling. Uh, our department chair gave me four classes to teach this past semester, uh, and And I've been doing this here for nineteen years and and have never had a four course uh, semester, and man, it kicked my butt. It was uh, uh, very difficult. but uh, 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 and I didn't try to write anything during during this past uh, uh, semester i've been been catching up the last couple of weeks, but wow, uh, the British Archives are important because you you start out the book talking about the the international aspects of the blockade you know we think of it as the united states and the confederate states but of course uh, the third party that matters a great deal is great britain they they've they're the ones who engage in a lot of the trade with the uh, the confederate states and it's their ships that are going to be involved uh that i thought of saying uh can you give me uh, a summary of international law concerning blockades and precedents in, in 30 seconds? Just summarize it. But that would be a cruel and <laughs> uh, a terrible thing to do to anyone. Um,
3: it's insanely complicated. Uh, if anyone wants yes. to uh, endeavor on a, you know, a historiographical uh, work <laughs> on this, it's, it's really complicated. Of course, the British Empire, I don't think I have to remind any of your listeners um, – International law and what the British Empire wants often have significant overlap. Um, In this case, the Paris Agreement and what, you know, the first chapter there, we wrote about the Paris Agreement and how it influenced various events leading up to and including the blockade. Um, You know, it's like all international agreements. On the one hand, you can tell what it means, what they want. You know, blockades have to function a certain way. It's all spelled out. But on the other hand, it's open to interpretation, and that's what the British did. When the blockade was working the other way, I think the British always imagined blockades working in their favor. They would blockade ports when they felt the need to do so. And here now the North was blockading the South in the Civil War, and that was harming British interests.
1: I'm going to jump in real quick um, because we're going to take a short break. But I, I want to come back and ask you more about that, especially the Declaration of Paris, 1856 or 57 document. We'll come back and talk about talk more about all these things in the book, "The Union Blockade in the Civil War: A Reassessment." We're talking tonight with co-author Peter McCord. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to ProkopovichG at ecu.edu. That's P R O K O P o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Peter McCord, co-author of "The Union Blockade in the American Civil War: A Reassessment." We've been talking uh, initially here about the legality of the blockade, the the complex international law that governs uh, whether a block, you know, what what a blockade is and, and uh, when it's legal. The Declaration of Paris at the end of the the Crimean War, signed by Britain and France and and everybody in Europe pretty much, uh, set the rules. But the United States didn't sign that document. Was was that a matter of policy? Was that a protest? Or uh, Why didn't the U.S. participate in that?
3: Uh, we, We don't actually bring that up in the book, but I can still answer the question if you'd like. Um, yeah I, I was curious well yeah. you mentioned the u
1: s was not a signatory, and I've yeah. read that everywhere and i I was curious why
3: why not uh, you know before, before the war the the United States my guess would be i mean based upon what we've read and researched for this book i'm I'm not this isn't something that's a feature of the first chapter, <laughs> but my guess would be they were worried uh, what I said it before we went to the break that mm. the Paris agreement was something that the British signed because it would, it featured their interests. It featured European interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Americans feared that it would be used against them.
1: So the the British – well, you talk about the fact that the British have experience in blockades, and indeed the United States does. Yeah. But it's the U.S. as the victim in uh, the Revolution in 1812. Right,
3: right. Of course.
1: So, so this is – this is a whole new world that both sides are entering into, uh, both the United States and Great Britain.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about this before the podcast, because if, the, if this came up, what to, ta- what to mm-hmm. say about it. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting, there's international law, there's British law, there's British colonial structures in place,
0: mm-hmm. which are
3: important to the book um, and to our findings. And then, of course, there's the, the you know, the, the Union and the Confederacy. You know, viewing themselves as independent entities and with inde- right. independent interpretations of the laws. So you've got really a four-way. I was going to call it a triangle, but it's really four ways. You see, there's four actual legal setups in play here. Um, and the British were always trying. What I the, the focus of my part of the research. You know, um, Michael did a lot of the research on the Leibon and the and the Trent affair. I did mm-hmm. a lot of the research on the British blockade runners and how they were interpreting that and legally. Uh, physically, how they were reporting that information back to, from, you know, Savannah or from the Bahamas all the way back to London. Um, and the British were always looking for a way in this sort of four-way triangulation mm-hmm. to prove or assert or claim that what they were doing was legal. And what the, and what the Union was doing was illegal.
1: Yeah. One of the one one of the things I liked very much about this book was, uh, it you mentioned briefly, and, and it may have been Michael who wrote this section uh, the the Trent affair, yeah. and then dismiss it with, well, everybody already knows about the Trent affair. Let's talk about the uh, the the Labuan affair, a different ship that yeah. most of us don't know anything about, and uh, it, it's what I like about. Uh, talking with folks in Civil War Talk Radio about is the listeners, uh, they've heard of the Trent Affair. They, they know what it is. They can look it up if they if they want to know more. We don't need to explain it. We can just move right on to something no one's heard of uh, and get into something, get deeper into it. And and uh, the, your, your book, like this show, is not pitched at the person who doesn't know a dang thing about the Civil War. Uh, but it 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 does address a lot of issues that, that many of us who've read about the blockade don't know much in detail about. Um, and, and getting to the, the the question of the blockaders themselves, which you address in, in your next chapter, yep. that, I guess this ties in with the legality. That a, a paper blockade, a blockade that's not actually enforceable, is apparently not a legal blockade under the, the Paris Declaration. So when the U.S. starts the Civil War b- at the beginning of the war, they really can't blockade every southern port or every mile of three thousand miles of coastline. Obviously, so is it is it a legitimate blockade when it starts, and and how do they get enough ships to to make it
3: look more right? Legitimate? So those yeah, three questions there. They're all great. Sure, well, I'm throwing them all out. Yeah, Pick yeah. one. <laughs> uh, the British, you know, would view that that first summer of the war, um, in 1861. Mm-hmm. they viewed that as really a, a legally a non-entity, a non-blockade. The Union declared their intent. They declared a blockade in purpose and in effect. But the, you know, if the, if the ships aren't there off the coast of Charleston, uh, then it's not a blockade legally according to international law. And the British exploited that as much as they could. And so really there wasn't much of a blockade in the summer of 1861. Uh, Charleston and Savannah were the first – Ports to be blockaded in part because they were the easiest. The mm-hmm. the inlets and the sounds are fairly narrow. Um, you know, so a place like Wilmington, if you know the if you know the coastline, and if you're from the Carolinas, mm-hmm. uh, Wilmington has so many different ways in and ways out. You know, um, so there's that sort of thing. There's a physical. There's a geographical physical aspect to it. But the British focused on this legal aspect and every, at every point, if you're reading our book, um, if you're thinking about these issues at every point from the, from the commanders of these ships to the local councils, to the governor of the Bahamas, all the way up to the foreign office in London, every conversation was about the legality of it. Um, If, if a blockading squadron commander pulled over what he thought was a blockade runner, the blockade runner would immediately launch into a legal manifesto, you know, like the person pulled over for speeding who tells the cops that his rights are. <laughs> it was a little bit like that. It was. It, it per- I was surprised at how much it permeated all the language, all the documents.
1: Now from extensive hours wasted on YouTube, I'm aware that when you argue with the police about why you've been pulled over, that often ends badly yes. uh, for the, for the civilian. Um, and and I, I guess beyond being a laughing matter, it can end fatally if you're if you're uh, for some civilians. So so uh, yes. it can be very serious. I don't want to minimize that. But for the blockade runners, um, yes, the uh, well this this Labuan affair that we're talking about. This is a ship off the Rio Grande. Yeah. Uh, it's loaded with contraband Texas cotton, and the U.S. Navy seizes it. What can a captain possibly say to defend himself?
3: Yes, so there's there's a couple, well there's a bunch of things he could say now. Whether or not any of them are, have merit is another question. Right, um, right. But one of the things he could say is, well, if I'm in international waters and this isn't contraband cotton, right? It, cotton isn't a good of war, but it's a good that the South is selling to make money so that they can buy goods of war. It gets into kind of a gray area there. Uh, mm-hmm. Matamoros, you know, right across the river from Texas, the largest Mexican port near closest to Texas um, was overrun with cotton, whether it was brought on small ships or big ships or, or, you know, just pushed over on barges. There was so many bales of cotton that the British consul there reported back that he couldn't get to his office. There were two, because (laughs) people had dumped bales in the street. Um, so uh, another problem would be if the union commander, you know, believed was correct, right? the the union commander was correct that this is Mm -hmm. a, uh, this is contraband cotton. Um, well, what do they do then? They, you know, the, you tow the ship, oftentimes they would tow it to Miami, you know, the closest, safest union location. They would, they would, uh, well, t- sorry, towing, isn't there even the right word. They would captain the ship usually, unless they had a steamer, unless it was close, they wouldn't even tow it. They would ask the ship to sail with them to this port, or they would put a commander on the ship and he would sail mm-hmm. it, um, and then you end up in Miami and there's a court battle over and you, how long can you hold the sailors and what happens to the confiscated cotton. And, and, then, and then a couple months later, sometimes the ship just gets released anyway and they sail to Havana and sell the cotton. Um, so there was a, it's, the whole thing was, was strangely murky for the first, I mean, honestly, for the first three years of the war. This is what I just said, kind of encapsulates almost every encounter.
1: Now, when they do get a ship safely back to a prize port, then, in theory, a court adjudicates, yes, this was contraband. Yep. Um, then what happens to the, the cotton or whatever that's been seized?
3: Sometimes it was destroyed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was sold anyway, right, either through a third party or through a union uh, merchant ship, mm-hmm. Um now, of course, that, mean, that means the money doesn't get back to the original owner, but the cotton is still sold on the international market. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it was destroyed. Sometimes it just stayed there. I mean, we, the records on that actually aren't very good. Um, I wasn't able to track any of that you know, on a one-for-one basis, mm-hmm. uh, which I just saw anecdotes. I'm, so I'm basically repeating the anecdotes that I, that I saw in the documents. Um, <sighs> Legally the, speaking, they should, They felt the union felt they, of course, had the right to seize it.
1: Now the the money if if the if the cotton is sold uh, if if the government seizes it if it, it, say you take it to a, a a somehow get it to a prize court in a, a federally controlled state yeah. then you now you've got all this money and uh, I guess where I'm going with it is don't does the 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 ship that captured it do they get the money?
3: Uh, not – well, that's a good question. I can't say yes or no, but I would guess no, um, that, we, that this was a government operation, right? It's a Navy a navy operation. So the captain of the ship, he gets – the captains, by the way, were very, very um, – it very much read like a movie script. You know, the, <laughs> the, 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 the person in command, whether it was a blockade runner, a, a Confederate ship or a British ship or a, or a Union ship – Uh, The the, the person in command of each of these ships was very assertive in every document, very full of pride of of his duty and his role. Um, A master of the rhetoric, you know, not master Mm -hmm. and commander, but master of the rhetoric of the time. Um, And almost every encounter between these captains read like a movie script. Um, Very powerful and assertive language they would throw at each other. Um, And it wasn't... It, you never got the sense that there was a lot of money changing hands, although that it's you know, in a black market operation, of course, that's, that's mm-hmm. possible, just like today in modern times. So the, the analogy I always – when I talk about this with my students when I'm teaching class, mm-hmm. you know, there's illegal drug trade in America today. We don't know exactly how many – you know, how much money, how many grams, how many kilos of illegal drugs. Um, we don't – we can guess. But you don't know the exact number, and that's the same thing here. There's a lot happens under the table. A lot happens below the documents. I guess is, is my assumption.
1: But yeah. I mean, there was prize money for for captures. At least. Oh, sure. It, so, so you've got that element uh, that, that the Navy crews would would hope to get if they if they captured a blockade runner.
3: Yes. Um. Now that you've meant, now that you've raised that, it's a kind of an interesting question. I hadn't thought of this uh, until now, but you know, they sunk. They either ran a lot of ships aground, they mm-hmm. forced them to scuttle, they they sunk them, um, or they captured them. All right, and it's you get more money, right, if on the capture. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I didn't see any evidence. Now, remember, I'm looking at the my role in this research project was to look at mm-hmm. British documents. And so the British were always trying to run, always trying to find the runners, always trying to find a legal way to say the runners weren't runners.
1: Well, now that the British presence in America, then let, let me ask this question: uh, There's no ambassador to the Confederate States of America; they're not recognized as a nation. No, but there are Confederate officials in the South. Yes,
3: yes, consuls. The most famous of which, and I think there was a biography recently called "Our Man in Charleston." Uh, the mm-hmm. British consul in Charleston was a man named Lyons. Yes. Um, yeah, and that's he's the most famous. But there was one in every port. There was a Lyons in every port, and they're they're named in the book. Um,
1: so these people, they're they're they they don't represent the British government the way an ambassador does. They don't make policy. But uh, well, what role did they play?
3: They're what not ambassadors, they but they they work for the Foreign Office. Okay so they reported to lord russell who was mm-hmm. in charge of the – before he was prime minister he was in charge of the foreign office
1: and you mentioned in the book that they also they they take notes they they write back to the foreign office and talk about the blockade runners coming in going out and yep. uh the, the, theoretically britain is neutral but these guys seem like they're they're awfully interested in helping uh, evade the blockade
3: yes that's absolutely correct. Um, Lions was first and foremost among them, but, you know, in, there was in, in Mobile and in New Orleans, too. There were very active British consuls, and they, they observed a lot, and they wrote a lot. Um, almo- it's almost like reading a, someone's Twitter feed when you read these. <laughs> li- Lions, Lions was sending out short little paragraph blurbs. You know, I saw a boat on the shoals today, and that's mm-hmm. it. And then the yeah. next day I saw three we – we had three captains who got through because they were not carrying any contraband, which may or may not have been true. Um, that sort of thing. It's like a daily blog on what was happening in Charleston. Lyons had that.
1: And I'm blanking on the author's name of the, the, the book about him, the, Our Man in Charleston, but he was on the show not too many months ago. And yeah. uh, as one gets older, the CRS – i can't remember stuff syndrome sets in uh but it was a fascinating story about the, this consul in in charleston and uh and his role now the real political stuff of course with great britain is happening in washington dc you've got the uh, uh the ambassador there lord lyons and uh, william seward the secretary of state mm-hmm. interacting all the time uh I got the sense reading this book that there was that their personal relationship played a considerable role in how, how things worked out.
3: You mean, you mean Lyons and Seward? Yeah. Yes. Well, anyone who contacted Seward and one of the things that struck me here, I was looking at the British records and the British archives and kind of seeing the British perspective, anyone who came into contact with Seward, I mean, it's a combination of love and, you know, damnation. <laughs> they they were stymied by him at every turn. I mean, if if nothing else, if you wanted to write a positive book about Seward, and I, I know many people have, mm-hmm. uh, just look at the British archives. They hated everything he did,
2: mm-hmm. and
3: because he was he was always a, they felt like he was always a step ahead. They never said this, but when you mm-hmm. read between the lines of the documents, they felt that Seward was always a step ahead of them, and they cursed him. Mm-hmm. But but respected him from a respect from a position of respect. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, he, he certainly, uh, it, it, I mean, he had a lot to deal with. We talked about the international law here. Uh, he had to argue with his own cabinet uh, peers and with President Lincoln. Uh, your book talks about the difference between declaring a blockade and simply closing the ports and, and the legalities of that. Uh, there's a lot more. We're going to take another short break. We are talking tonight with Peter McCord, co-author of the Union Blockade in the American Civil War, a reassessment. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. self-improvement career advice and a variety of other topics check us out today you're sure to find something of interest voice america variety talk on today's hot topics
2: voice america is on linkedin connect with us
0: today have you become a member yet sign up now to become a member of voice america it's always free and easy All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovich G at ECU.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z. G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Peter McCord. He is co-author, along with Michael Brem Bonner, of the book "The Union Blockade in the American Civil War: A Reassessment." We've been talking, in particular, uh, uh, Peter, with your section of the book, dealing with the the, the British role, and and they are absolutely the third uh, player in the triangle, or uh, or. or polygon uh, because there are other countries involved but but they're the ones for whom cotton is so vital to their economy they're the ones for whom uh international law regarding the blockade is so important because they expect to use the blockade in any future war they might fight they've used it before against napoleon against the u.s in 1812 uh so they've got a vested interest in how this works out one of the angles that you mention in the book is what happens when a blockade runner is captured and the sailors are british nationals can the united states just throw them into prison are they are they pirates are they what 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 happens to these guys or do they let them
3: go what happens to them yeah, so it's different. Every, it's another surprising finding for me, um, looking directly at the British perspective and what they've kept records on. They, of course, didn't want any of their sailors captured or held captive. Um, sometimes they were, and sometimes they weren't. And it's hard to, it was hard to figure out, or I, I guess I still haven't figured out why sometimes they would be held captive and sometimes they wouldn't. Even when they were held captive, though, they would usually be released. Uh, and when they were released, they were sort of released back into the wild and they could re-engage uh, the blockade if they wanted to.
1: Now, they, and, and that happens. It, it's like, uh, you know, people who are familiar perhaps with the parole system for prisoners of war mm-hmm. in, in land battles between the North and South. If you're captured early in the war, you don't go to a prison. There isn't one yet. So you sign a parole or your officer does. You're free to go. But you can't fight again until you're exchanged. Once you're exchanged, you can come back and fight again. Then you can get captured, parole, fight again, catch and release. Uh, eventually, that that's, that's going to take a long time to to uh, end the war. And some of these British sailors, you point out, they get caught, they get released, they get caught again. Does the United States finally get tired of this and just say no more?
3: Uh, Seward does. And Seward was very skillful at you know trying to... Um you know, increase the efficiency of the blockade each year, which he, I think he did do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you have to remember, not every blockade runner is a British-owned ship or a British-flagged ship. Even even someone selling cotton from, say, trying to or trying to sell cotton from Texas to a British buyer, uh, they could be on any flagged ship with any sailors from any of uh, you know any uh, Atlantic System nation. Um, so it's not it's the blockade runners even though the british were interested in the blockade at running the blockade and supporting running the blockade it's it would be unfair or inaccurate just to, to suggest that they're all this is a british affair only affair um so they're you know okay so there's one ship that gets pulled over they go to prize court there's 20 sailors on board eight you know eight of them are british <laughs> and the other 12 are from well Various other places, um, so those eight aren't going to aren't going to change. Having them captured isn't going to change the the structure of what's going on. Does that make Does that make sense?
1: It, well, it yeah. does. And and it, well, you pointed early in the war those eight yeah. guys. Say we didn't know there was a blockade on. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> we didn't know we were doing anything wrong.
3: Oh uh, no, they might it, not. This is you know this is the uh, we all know the time period here, right? But true. That's what information is is available to people. What they're reading, what they're hearing.
1: Now. I wanted to ask this, and and if this is outside, this is more what what your co-author wrote, uh, we can move along. But I was fascinated to learn that at the beginning of the war, some of the blockade runners operated under sail. We all picture the blockade runner, the classic low, lean steamship, burning anthracite coal, (laughs) uh, painted gray so you can't see it, moving as fast as it can almost in the evening. But at the beginning of the war, they're just sailing right through the blockade
3: yeah but there's nothing really to sail it's because it's a paper blockade. They can sail right mm-hmm. through nothing pretty easily. Um, the sailing ships did continue through the war, however, they were coastal shipping okay so any a low draft ship, a shallow boat a smaller a schooner a smaller schooner maybe not even a schooner um, mm-hmm. anything under thirty tons
1: and the fact that they would go along the coast brings up another uh, a point of, of terminology, another thing I learned from this book was the discussion of the, the, the blockaders themselves, the blockading squadrons, were eventually formed in an in inner blockade and outer blockade. You had ships far out at sea, or, or at least out, out off the coast, and you had other ships right there to try to catch those little sailboats going up and down the coast. But that tells me that by the end of the war the u s Navy must have had a lot of ships to to go from being able to blockade one or two ports to having a double ring around much of the southern
3: coast. Yes, the deployment of ships over time was is is impressive, and I would still argue though that one the one thing that maybe didn't come through in the book well enough I was kind of reviewing some of the things that I put in the book and I wanted to before mm-hmm. the podcast you know you can't measure just like I was talking about the illegal drug trade today. You can't measure things that happen below the documents. You can't how many coastal ships got through in a various time. It was pretty easy to sail from Savannah all the way down to Jacksonville and you get as close as you can to the Bahamas and then jump over to the Bahamas on a sailing ship, even later in the war. Hmm. Um, And so if you could get to the Bahamas and offload and not even at the port, there were all sorts of anchorages around the Bahamas. You don't have to go to Nassau because Nassau is where you're going to get caught. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to any of the anchorages around any of the – you know how many I- islands there are in the Bahamas. Um, they had anchorages all over the place, and smaller coastal vessels would, would meet up with larger British – sometimes British flagged or British manned ships, and they would transfer their cargo. And then they would – from the Bahamas, they would sail back to L- Bermuda or London.
1: no. Th- don't want to leave our listeners hanging uh, any longer that your book is subtitled a reassessment and uh, in your your last chapter and your conclusion you you do reassess how effective the the blockade was um i but there's a mixed message in those chapters um how, so let me just ask you your summary of it uh, effective or or not effective
3: <laughs> well this is something that michael and i went back and forth on and when i say that i don't mean we were we differed uh, right we 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 differed at different times you know i i thought more one way than the other and then he he changed his mind as we you know we did what i think all researchers should do we looked at the documents and let it you know drive our decision making right uh, i as the process, as the, as it you know, Michael was working on the union more than, more than me. And I was working on the British sources more than him. Mm-hmm. So what he saw looking at the union was an increasing stranglehold. And what I saw looking at the British perspective was they felt they were cracking this thing open enough for their needs until around late 1863. And then it started to get more expensive for them, more costly, more, there were, you know, there were more ships being captured, more sailors being held. And but but one thing we don't bring up enough in the book probably was that the British found a new source for cotton. Uh, it was from the mm. Dutch East Indies. In eighteen sixty four the imports from from the Dutch East Indies in that region jumped astronomically. So someone figured out to switch production away from cocoa and coffee and other things they were growing there into cotton. And so once the British saw that they had another source of cotton, they didn't they didn't need to embrace the costs of this operation.
1: Well, you do your your point about ships being caught, um, about it becoming more expensive. You do use some some uh, you know cleometric data, some 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 numerical data here. And this book, I want to assure listeners, it's not a mathematical book. It's not a book of charts. It's not a, uh, a data focused analysis of the blockade as a whole. And some people would welcome and Somebody should write something like that. Uh, but you do go that direction in your your last chapter. You break the war down into 90-day chunks and show how many blockade runners, blockade runnings were attempted, how many were successful, and so on. And you conclude that the, the likelihood of getting through, if anything, goes up rather than down over the course of the war, which is kind of surprising.
3: Yeah, so for steamships... There's a slight increase in the number of runs and the chance of a run being successful. Part of that is due to the fact that they switched. Um, well, they had combination, the British built ships that were combination ships. They actually purpose built ships to run the blockade that mm-hmm. were combination steam and sailing ships. So you sail when you don't want to be seen from a distance because the steam is visible in the daytime. Mm-hmm. So they would alternate back and forth. They had, they developed new tricks like that all along the way. They were building ships in Ireland, actually, and some ports in Northern England, specifically for running the blockade. Um, and so they were able to get more ships through. As a, you know, if you're doing the numbers, doing looking at the charts in our book, like you just said, mm-hmm. uh, you can see that. However, that increase, you know, might not be enough to make a dramatic conclusion. Does that?
1: Well, it, it, I, I would say more interesting, I thought was that instead of relying on the numbers and saying, well here's how many ships got through that, therefore it's effective or ineffective yeah. is the focus on on what I would call soft factors. you discussed the psychological effect of the blockade on the Confederacy uh, and, and presumably and and, and touch briefly on the, the positive psychological effect in the north. And I have to assume the the British likewise were were affected by reading every day about this as well as experiencing the uh, you know lack of cotton coming from the south It's not the raw numbers but just the the uh, the emotional impact of of knowing that your your coast is
3: closed well sure, and you mentioned earlier Seward um, was he wasn't just intelligent and solving problems the way I said, but he was facing mm-hmm. opposition. There were plenty of northern politicians who had differing views on what the blockade is, what it should be, in part because there's, a, you know, there's north and south trade predating the war. That gets mm-hmm. shut down. So there were a lot of northern politicians who wanted that trade to continue. Um, so there's in, – in, in politics, this was difficult. In culture, if you read every, if you read the newspapers in the North, mm-hmm. uh, we're strangling the South. And if you read the newspapers in the South, we've got brave young lads on boats that are running the blockade, and yet they can't be caught. Kind of like a wily e. coyote kind of narrative, mm-hmm. right? Or sorry, a roadrunner narrative, right? Um, so it, you're right. The, these soft factors matter for the narratives of the war, how people felt about the war. And as we all know, all your listeners know, you get you get into 1864. The end of the war starts to feel inevitable. Um, mm-hmm. So really, it matters more to me what was going on in 1862 and 1863. And at that point, the British had a plan, and they it was some I would characterize it as somewhat successful and somewhat effective, mm-hmm. where they were developing steamship tactics. They were using their colonial system in Halifax, in Bermuda, in the Bahamas, in Havana, in and and Matamoros, and in Honduras even. Uh, they were using that kind of half moon ring around the Atlantic system, right? For the <laughs> ports and the ships there. And the people reporting back from those, the information coming back uh, from those places was was all information they used to organize this effort., uh, it's really fascinating. and And I think more successful my in my view, after having done mm-hmm. all this research, what the British did was more successful than I would have gotten from reading the previous literature, but still not successful enough. And so see, the, the American view as well, Did it hurt the South? Did it help win the war? Um, And, of course, the answer, I think, is yes to both of those questions. Um, But But from the British British standpoint, it was they were getting what they wanted for a while.
1: I I mean, you make the point. You you discuss the historiography of this question. You make the point that that historians have for so long assumed that the blockade was both successful and became more successful over time, uh, or effective may be a better word. Yep. That to actually look at the data and see, well, it might be more effective in the sense that uh, it's taking more effort to get through it, but more ships are actually getting through it or or a larger percentage of ships trying are getting through it. So in that, our surface assumption, though, it got more effective till it was a complete stranglehold is is not necessarily correct. Uh, but that, that you also stress that it depends very much how you look at this, whether from the the view from the north or the view from the south uh, or the view from across the Atlantic, that that you, you get different pictures. And it's worth revisiting this question, looking back, going back to what you guys have done to the original evidence, uh, rather than simply reading what other historians have been saying uh, all along.
3: Yeah, I hope well, our book adds in. That's, that's an apt summary. I hope our book adds in the way you just said
1: and, and and I think it will. I think it will. It certainly has caused me to think more about the blockade. And listeners, uh, when you read this book, The Union Blockade in the American Civil War, a reassessment by Michael Brem Bonner and Peter McCord, uh, you too will think differently about the blockade than you have before. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on Civil War Talk Radio tonight.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: And listeners, as always...